0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at some of the takeaways from the hearings investigating the January 6th insurrection. Most notably, they knew, they knew, they knew, they knew, they knew from the very beginning that their fraud claims were nonsense, and they pushed ahead anyway. Clips today are from Fresh Air, Straight White American Jesus, the broadcast, The Intercept, and the Tom Hartman program with an additional members-only clip from Democracy Now!
1: The storming of the Capitol is not an isolated event. Um, it, it's the most dramatic, most documented, and most visible and physically threatening part of the larger story. But it's just one part. So how do you see the insurrection as fitting into the larger months-long story in the attempt to overthrow the results of the election.
2: Well, it's the culmination of everything that came before it. Uh, and basically, the Trump campaign had run out of options at that point. At first, they had tried to keep the former president in power through the courts. You know, right away on election night, Donald Trump announces that he won the election and despite what, despite what the votes say. And so th- they try lawsuit after lawsuit to try to keep him in power. And that's the legitimate way to do it, right? I mean, these lawsuits were, were very dubious and they were bogus, but that is the proper remedy to try to uh, contest an election is to go to the courts. And they try some 60 plus times and fail fail each time. Each one of these suits uh, is thrown out. After that happens, they try, they try schemes that are increasingly, um, at odds with norms, standards, and the law. So they then come up with this idea that, well, if the courts won't go along with this, it's because they haven't seen the evidence of fraud that we believe exists. And in order to get that evidence of fraud, we need to take control of the voting machines because there must be fraud. So they, they strategize with a number of, uh, theories for how they can take control of various voting machines. Obviously, this is a very dangerous and frightening plan. And at first, we believed it was mainly pushed by, uh, ext- people with extreme views. But you know, through reporting, we've been able to determine that Donald Trump himself actually entertained this plan and checked with three different agencies to see if they would carry it out. And each one rejected these attempts to to seize voting machines. And so that plan sort of dies in the water once he can't get any of his agency heads to go along with it.
1: So when previous efforts to overturn the election failed, then there was the effort to submit fake electors to the electoral college so that The Biden electors wouldn't be getting to vote. Trump electors would be getting to vote. So tell us how that figures in.
2: So, yes, after the Trump campaign realizes they cannot win through the courts or through seizing voting machines, they have to come up with a different strategy to keep Donald Trump in power if that's their goal. And one idea they settle on is to have their lawyers fan out across the country and uh, contact Republicans in seven different battleground states that were all won by Joe Biden and convince them to meet and certify slates of electors for President Trump instead of Joe Biden and then send those slates to the Congress and to the National Archives. But in, in order for this plan to have any legitimacy, they need the governors of those states or the state legislatures to approve of these slates, to say, yes, in fact, there was a contested election here. We have two slates of electors. We don't know which one is right. Here, Congress, please decide for us. The problem for Donald Trump is no one's willing to go along with that plan. They they do get the the fake electors to sign these certificates, but no governor and no legislature is willing to meet to sign off on them. So they don't have any legitimacy once they get to Washington. And that's when uh, Donald Trump becomes one enraged at those people who won't go along with it. You know, I recall uh, Governor Kemp of Georgia uh, uh, receiving a lot of ire from the president because he would not acquiesce. Um, but uh, then they have to come up with a different way to try to keep him in power to say, well, maybe we don't need to get uh, governors to sign off on them. Maybe we can just have Vice President Mike Pence accept these fake electors and throw out legitimate votes. And that's when the pressure really turns to Mike Pence.
1: And Pence decides, like, he can't go forward with that. It's not legal. And he decides that after talking with his lawyers and with former Vice President Dan Quayle. And then Trump gets really angry with Pence and and even says, as they're chanting Mike Pence, even says, Maybe they should hang Mike Pence. And we don't know what the tone was when he said that, whether he was saying that in a snarky way or like, I really mean it kind of way. But it is a demonstration of how angry he was. So how does all of this lead to the actual violence, the actual storming of the Capitol, the insurrection on January 6th? Like, where does that fit in to the larger story? Like, connect the dots to that explosion.
2: Yes, so the only reason to have a crowd assembled in Washington on January 6th is to put pressure on Congress and on Mike Pence specifically to overturn the election. There's there's never a rally on January 6th any other year. The purpose of that was to bring a crowd to D.C. and to the Capitol. So the very fact that they've assembled this crowd of thousands creates a sort of very hostile political environment where angry people are being told the election was stolen from them, and they're being directed to put pressure on those people inside that building. And Donald Trump directs the crowd to march towards the Capitol that day. Now, when does it get violent? That is a question of substantial investigation and how much planning went into the violence. And what we know now is that several militia groups and so, and and hundreds of people did in fact plan to commit violence that day. Uh there's a lot of testimony uh that federal prosecutors have. There are a lot of guilty pleas uh coming out of the various court cases where there were some people obviously who did get caught up with the mob, caught up in the moment. Maybe they didn't come to DC that day to to commit violence against anyone. But there were people there who did have that plan and they believed they were carrying out Donald Trump's orders. If you look at, and I believe the January 6th committee at the hearings will, will play this out uh, in great detail, but there's sort of a call and response dynamic going on between Donald Trump, his public statements and his tweets in particular, and then how the... Um, the mob and the violent actors respond to them. For instance, uh, Donald Trump's tweet on December 19th, where he says, uh, he encourages people to come to DC and he says, it's going to be wild. That really sets in motion the entire rally. Before that, there were no permits filed. There were no pla- travel plans to DC. All of the sudden you see thousands of actors immediately go into work.
3: We had the first hearings from the J6 Select Committee. Uh, Benny Thompson was the chair and spoke a lot. And and him and Liz Cheney were really the ones who were who were up front and and presenting the the material, the evidence. There was witness testimony from one of the police officers who was one of the very first to encounter the mob and also from a documentary filmmaker who uh, provided video footage that had never been seen before. Let me just jump into a couple of things that I think are takeaway, like just things that happened last night that that are significant. I think there's a lot more to say at, in terms of analysis. But I think last night we learned a couple things. It's very clear that the J6 committee wants to lay out a case that Trump knew Trump and his people knew there was no legal basis to uh, challenge the election in in conventional ways that the, the voter fraud idea was bunk that the ability for Pence to overturn the election using his role as vice president was outside of legal bounds. And what they did in order to shore this up, and we'll get into the Eastman and the lawyers and that stuff in a minute, but what they did last night to shore this up was they had Trump's people on tape. So we saw Bill Barr and Bill Barr basically said, hey, when they brought up the Dominion voting machine fraud idea, there was nothing there. That way he called it nonsense. Uh, Ivanka Trump said that she followed Bill Barr and she was pretty much like, you know, he said there was no fraud. And so I'm with him. Alex Cannon, who was a former Trump campaign lawyer, said on video that going back to November 2020, when they were looking for votes and fraud and issues, he was like, I couldn't find I was reporting back to Mark Meadows that I couldn't find anything. So they had Trump's people, one of his kids, his his is AG and one of his lawyers all saying there's no basis for this. So I think there was the legal kind of like dismantling. And then there was the presentation of what was an extra legal conspiracy. And so we've seen this before. We'll talk about it more today. But the second part of last night to me was an effort to show that the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers had been planning all of this for months. That there was a a, a a movement put in place when Trump said, stand back, stand by at the debate with Biden, that Proud Boys numbers tripled after that, uh, that set in motion a kind of plan to do and, and what the president needed and to show up where he wanted. And they interpreted that as January 6th. And the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys leaders met at a parking garage on January 5th. There was some kind of planning. It also showed, and I'll 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 throw this to you here in just one second, Leah. To get your thoughts, the video footage also showed just how the the three hundred or so Proud Boys absolutely skipped President former President Trump's speech that day, right? So if you think about January sixth and you think about that infamous speech and and rally at the Ellipse where Giuliani and and Mo Brooks and and Trump and all these people are talking, the Proud Boys didn't. They didn't even stick. They they didn't even go to church. They just went to get the punch and the cake. After I mean, they they just walked. They just walked to the Capitol, and they were ready for a battle. I mean, it wasn't like they wait. It's not like they listened to Trump, listened to Giuliani, and they were like, okay, yeah, maybe we should spontaneously walk down there and see what happens. There's all the evidence that points to this was planned, and we'll get into this in a second. But this follows on the fact that this week, Enrique Tarrio and a couple of other. Uh, Proud Boy lieutenants were charged with sedition. I mean, it, it charged essentially with a conspiracy to to start this insurrection.
4: Today's hearing, as I heard it made clear that not only was it unlawful and unconstitutional for Vice President Pence to overturn the election on his own by refusing to accept You know, legitimate electoral votes on January 6th, but that everyone knew that, including even the guy who was selling that plan the hardest, Attorney John Eastman and his pal uh, Rudy Giuliani. Again, uh, even they did not believe what they were selling. They all knew that it was wrong, but they did it anyway, and so did Donald Trump. Ultimately, I think that was my major takeaway from Thursday's testimony. Yours?
5: I think yeah I think you're absolutely right. That's what we learned was really the, the lawyers themselves didn't believe the legal theory that they were that they were flogging. And, and in fact, there were moments in there, which is one of the more surprising ones that nobody's really talking about, but I thought it was interesting, that they asked Eastman, I, can't, I think it, maybe it was Jacob who asked him, you know, well, so what do you think, I mean, can any vice president do this? And he just blatantly said, well, no, Al Gore couldn't have done it, that would have, wouldn't have done it, and Kamala Harris couldn't do that mm-hmm. in 2024, but we want you to do it. Yeah. I mean, that's just so, <laughs> so, so outlandishly, just blatantly partisan hackery that, you know, it kind of, everything, all the rest of these arguments they were having really seemed superfluous when you, when you realize that that's what they were really arguing about. What they were saying, what Eastman and of course Trump were saying, we just want you to do this. It, 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 we're, we've made up some, some, you know, sort of, uh, you know, legal ex- excuses why you can do it. that but we don't believe those either. What we do believe is that you have the power to do it simply because you are there. You can do it. <laughs> and what's interesting about that is that there is some acknowledgement, and, and we've never really discussed what would have happened if he had. Right? What was what was the, what were the cascading events that would come from that? Today, for the first time, what we're hearing is that people in the White House were saying. It you know it's going to be taken up in the streets. There are going to be riots. And the answer to that was, yeah, well, we've had political violence before. And I come back to that same thing that I've said many times on this show before. The night before the the um, the insurrection, the mm-hmm. night before January fifth, Pence came to the White House and had a discussion with Trump about this. And this was all in Bob Woodward and Bob Costa's book. That um, they had a discussion with him, and he he told Mike Pence, you know, why don't you can just. Do this, and Pence was arguing with him and saying, "No, I do not think one man has the authority to do this." We heard that echoed by all of his, mm-hmm. his legal advisors, and and uh, and Trump said he's out there. He opens the window; it's cold. You know, they're describing the, the you know all the details. It's cold outside. He opens the French door, I guess, to the to the White House, and you can hear the the um, rallyers that were out mm-hmm. there the night before, and that was the Proud Boys and all those other people. There was a rally on, on January fifth, mm-hmm. and he said you could hear them outside there kind of talking and yelling and cheering and what have you and he goes and Trump said and as Pence said well I no one man it I don't have the authority to do this Trump responded he listened he goes what if these people say you do yeah. and that is really I think what we're leading up to is is and I don't know if they're going to say this explicitly in the hearings or whether or not we're all just going to have to you know sort of read between the lines here But they were prepared for insurrection, but not the one they got. They Mm. were prepared to do this thing. And then, of course there would be riots in the street. These 78 million people who just had their election stolen from them riots, were going to react. Against, and that yeah. is the insurrection that they were planning for. Yeah, and that, that would give given Trump the opportunity to uh, declare martial law and exactly. do all kinds of other mischief.
4: Which goes back to the reason why uh, the Nancy Pelosi and so forth were concerned about militarizing the Capitol uh, at the time because they were worried that the military would actually turn against them, perhaps or that Donald Trump at least would order the military to turn against them.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by ExpressVPN, and I have been a customer of theirs for years, so I am pretty happy to tell you about them. Firstly, if you're not familiar with VPNs, They're sort of like an invisibility cloak and a skeleton key for the entire internet all in one. They protect your privacy by shielding your web traffic from prying eyes who want to micro-target you with ads and do other even more nefarious things. And they help you access restricted content around the world by letting you spoof your location. I've tried a few VPNs, and I really can say that ExpressVPN is the one that I've had the best experience with. And look... If all that cloak and dagger doesn't feel necessary to you, the truth is that the most frequent usage of VPNs is to unlock movies and TV shows that are available in other countries. Like Netflix has different libraries for each country. If you're waiting for the new season of Better Call Saul to show up on Netflix, well, it's already available in the UK just as one of thousands of examples. All you have to do is fire up the ExpressVPN app change your location to the UK, refresh Netflix, and that's it. But it's not just Netflix. It works with nearly any streaming service and is ridiculously fast, so you can easily stream in HD, and it's compatible with all your favorite devices. As I said, I've been an ExpressVPN user for both privacy and digital globetrotting purposes for years now. It really is the must-have app for any citizen of the world on the Internet. And if you visit expressvpn.com slash Best of the Left, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. And of course, you support the show when you use our link. You can watch what you want, protect yourself, and everything. ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash left.
1: A significant portion of the first hearing will focus on the proud boys of the first public hearing by the House Select Committee. The Proud Boys are a far-right group. Five members, including the former leader Enrico Tario, were indicted on Monday of seditious conspiracy. Um, What does that mean, and why is it so consequential?
2: Well, it gets beyond the uh, idea that this was a spontaneous uh, attack, that it was just a mob that got out of control. People got too excited that day. Uh, This gets to actually the planning of essentially political violence. Um, the one thing that's interesting for me to look at, and I think the committee as well, is the connections that the Proud Boys have to Republican politics and connecting the violent extremists and the militia groups with uh, the Republican Party and Republican uh, political actors. So, for instance, Enrico Tario and some of the Proud Boys are members of Latinos for Trump. So they were sort of brought into the Trump campaign as uh, a way to motivate supporters and get uh, certain uh, voting blocks to support the president. At the same time, these same people, according to federal prosecutors, are planning a seditious attack on the government. So you have, um, and, and I think you see a similar thing with the Oath Keepers where you have the Oath Keepers uh, providing security for Roger Stone, an ally of Donald Trump. And then those same Oath Keepers are seen as part of a very organized force marching into the Capitol that day. So you're seeing an overlap between people in Republican politics and also people as part of these militia or right-wing extremist groups. And I think we're going to see a lot of Exploring an investigation of those themes at these hearings?
1: Yeah, well, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers are becoming very closely aligned and kind of intermeshed with part of the Republican Party. So, for instance, in Miami-Dade County, the Proud Boys, several Proud Boys have become part of local politics. About a half a dozen current and former members of the Proud Boys have seats on the Miami-Dade Republican Executive Committee. Um, Has anything like that happened before or people from such a far-right group have become embedded in the Republican establishment of local politics?
2: It really is a shocking development. I mean, we're talking about a chapter of the Republican Party, which was once a stronghold of the Bush family, now has five current or former Proud Boys uh, uh, involved. Uh, but we're seeing more and more of this, Terry, across the country. Uh, the, the leader of the Republican Party in Wyoming, a uh, fierce opponent of Liz Cheney, is a, is a member of the Oath Keepers. I did a story shortly after the attack on the Capitol where I looked at members of Congress, um, and their connections to these militia groups. And it actually isn't very hard to find examples where members of Congress go, go to Proud Boy meetings or go to Oath Keeper meetings. Or uh, go to joint events or have the Oath Keepers provide security for them or the Proud Boys provide security for them. So it it is very much, um, it has been allowed and perhaps even encouraged to bring in these militia groups and bring in these extremist groups into the, the right flank of the Republican Party.
3: Famously or infamously, Fox News did not show things from last night. You know, if you went to CNN, MSNBC, CBS, NBC, ABC, it was all there. And then, you know, if you had 20 TVs, uh, Fox would have been the only one that was doing something different. Tucker Carlson was on. They did no commercials, Leah. So they were like, we don't want to give people a reason. That's fascinating. To to like go away from Fox for 90 seconds, find themselves that one of those liberal networks like ABC or NBC and start watching the the, the J6 hearing. So they did no commercials, okay? And they did show like footage from the 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 hearings, but it wasn't the same perspective. So they were like showing the backs of people's heads as they were testifying when the previously unfor- uh, unseen footage of J6 insurrection was was being aired, they were showing the people's reactions, not the video. They didn't want the audience to see the actual video, right? Now, a couple a couple of points here, and I'll throw it to you. And I, I'm really curious what you think, especially given just kind of some of your background in 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 performance as aesthetics and so on. Is you know, there's folks. There's a piece of the Washington Post that says there's a there's a big problem here, and that Fox didn't show it. Fox has, you know, Tucker Carlson gets three million people a night, and so on and so forth. And that highlights the fact that Democrats just cannot get around that information echo chamber. That the game has been already set and already tilted because. Through generations of building their, their media networks and empires, the, the, the right in this country has found a way to, to cordon people off just to, to, to make sure they don't actually see the footage that the rest of the country is seeing. Right. Um, so I think that's an issue that, that, that's worth talking about. Um, I also think it's, it's worth talking about something that, that folks who don't watch Fox news probably don't know. Tucker Carlson's guest last night was Darren Beatty. So Darren Beatty. You know, was a White House appointee and a former staffer for Matt Gates. So this is the guy that was on last night with Tucker Carlson as these things were happening. What were some things that that he was tweeting during the Capitol insurrection on January 6th? He was tweeting this and there's some vulgar language and strong language ahead, friends. OK, so he tweeted, Tim Scott needs to learn his place and take a knee to MAGA. Tim Scott is a is a black man, a, a politician. Black Lives Matter must take a knee to MAGA. They must learn their place. Ibram Kendi. Ibram Kendi is, a, is an academic and a public intellectual who writes about anti-racism, also a black man, needs to learn his place and take a knee to MAGA. K. Cole James of Heritage Foundation needs to learn her natural place and take a knee to MAGA. Uh, uh, Darren Beatty writes for something called Revolver News. Revolver News is basically a conspiracy theory site that has, uh, among other things, pushed the false flag narrative that uh j6 was an inside job so if you go to revolver.news which i don't you can if you want but i'll save you the trip (laughs) there's a lot of headlines about how uh j6 was an inside job that Stuart Rhodes from the oath keepers may be an fbi informant that certain people you see on the videos from j6 are are conspicuous and that if you look closely this and then if you do that here and then oh there it's very clear that the man who had his like feet on Nancy Pelosi's desk or yeah, is actually from the FBI, right? That is who Tucker Carlson had. So it was not just that they didn't show it. It's like, Leah, they did no ads and they brought on this man who is a white supremacist and a conspiracy theorist. And that is how Fox News reacted. And I think just speaking of history, we should note that. But I also think in terms of performance and framing and aesthetics, there's a lot there. So any thoughts on the I know, sorry. it's a lot. <laughs> Anything, you know, you don't have to cover it all, but just, you know, what's going through your head as you you think about any of that?
6: Well, I hope your listeners appreciate your really excellent instincts about where to go. You know, like how to think through what was happening in the Fox News media world, because I always I want to be careful with my language here. Admiration is an uh, appreciation for the skill level of the folks over at Fox. Yeah. I mean, you can't, we can't say enough about that because they understand their audience so well and they have very creatively figured out how to ensure that the, the Fox News bubble stays intact, which is no small accomplishment in this world that, that we live in. So I think you're so right to point out those details, you know, like who did they have on? How, how did they do? Their formatting and the tone, I think, is really interesting because the the Tucker Carlson tone is just like one straight rage, rage best. Um, and they, I, I think that that is probably their best um, get in terms of like who can compete with police officers at the Capitol talking about you know their experiences. If I, it, I would never, but if I were a Fox News person, I could totally see why this is, this is the direction that they went. One of the things that I, I've been thinking about, um, is it, about this coordinated effort. You know, a lot of my research, and I know yours too, looks at how these media networks have coalesced and formed, um, cooperating relationships with what we would think of as quote-unquote the religious right which that could be defined in many different ways but also just how they that the length of these relationships it goes back much further than television radio paper publications so you're so right this is a really a long-standing effort
4: After Monday's hearing, Trump released a pretty silly 12-page rebuttal to the hearings to date. I don't know if you put yourself through uh, reading it. Uh, We did, and we uh, rebutted his dumb rebuttal on our previous broadcast. But one of his complaints uh, that has been echoed on Fox News or vice versa, by the way, is that, you know, he isn't allowed to bring rebuttal witnesses to all of this. There's no one to cross examine the committee's witnesses, even though I should add that it is a bipartisan committee. But does Trump and I guess Fox News have a point here with the, with the case? Be being, uh, being made by the uh, J six committee be stronger if that happened, even if only to sort of take away the bad faith talking point from Trump and his uh, MAGA party, because that sort of seems like all they have left at this point. Oh, it's it's so political, uh, you know. There's 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 no one there to cross examine witnesses and so forth.
5: Oh, they whined about this stuff in in committee hearings throughout Trump's um, presidency. And in the impeachment hearings, I mean, there's always something, right? Uh, and the fact is, is that he needs to take that up with Kevin McCarthy, because Kevin McCarthy and his, and, you know, the, the whole Republican, you know, party in, mm-hmm. in the Congress rejected the idea of a, of a bipartisan, independent bipartisan commission, which would have had an equal number. They all would have had to agree on what they were presenting. It all would have been done very differently than this one. Um, and they rejected that idea. And then, and that's because Kevin McCarthy wanted to put a bunch of people who were involved in January 6th on the actual committee. And, you know, and then he ended up taking his ball and going home. So he has no one to blame but his own people. But more importantly than that, the witnesses that they are using in this, there isn't, has there been even one Democrat even, even appearing in any of these hearings other than? then the people that are on the panel, and even that, it's only been mm-hmm. two. It's been Benny Thompson, and, and today it was, uh, was uh, Congressman Aguilar. <laughs> it's all Republicans. They, they. These are all people, you know. And I guess Trump's out there screaming. They're all a bunch of rhinos. Yeah. But at some point, people in the country have got to go. Wait a minute. This is his own staff. These are Republican. These are Republican officials. These are people who, you know. I guess there was there was the the police, the the policewoman who uh, the Capitol policewoman who mm-hmm. testified in the first in the first hearing. Other than that, though, that, that this has been Republicans making the case. Now, you can call that political if you want, but it's a kind of a strange definition of, you know, partisanship in the way, in my view. Well, so I don't think they have a leg to stand on, on well,
7: that. I, well, I will
4: add, it might be a strange definition of partisanship, but that is what they do. Anyone who would testify against Donald Trump is not a real Republican. They're all <laughs> rhinos. Right. Uh, and uh, even at the end of Thursday's hearings, I don't know if you, uh, I don't know what, you know, channel you were watching on, I was watching on Fox News today, and uh, at the end of the hearing, Judge Luttig said uh, something like, Donald Trump presents a clear and present danger to the United States, but he added that the danger is not so much what he did in 2020, the danger is what he and his supporters are now planning to do in 2024. And over on Fox News, uh, constitutional attorney, so-called Jonathan Turley, yeah. said he was very surprised that the committee would want to become so political uh, at the end, even though it was actually the conservative judge uh, Michael Luttig who raised that point, and frankly, it's not a political point as I see it. That's about the Constitution and democracy. No, I mean, are the American people dumb enough to see all of this as merely a political exercise, uh, or am I wrong? And 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 that's what it actually is.
5: Well, I mean. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah, if you're watching Fox News, what you see is Jonathan Turley saying, oh, it's so political. You don't know, pay they attention on, to this. They put on these partisans here who are just, you know, giving the political line, which, of course, is, is ridiculous. I mean, it, Michael, J. Michael Luddick... <laughs> I mean, it's like, they might as well have dredged up Antonin Scalia from the grave and put him up there yeah. and had him making these, making those comments. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I don't agree with Luddick. I'm sure my, my colleague here on this, on this, uh, program doesn't agree with Michael Luddick, but you know, on, on many issues, but on this, this is, this is what you call I don't know, you know, non-partisanship, right? I mean, it's not partisan. It's anything but partisan, because you've got that guy making the case that these people were putting their their own, you know, Trump was putting his own political future, his own political well-being, and the party, by the way, was putting their own political well-being above the country. That's the case that's being made, and it's being made by Republicans and and arch-conservatives who are making that case. So, you know, I mean, sure, they're going to say that on Fox, but, you know, what are we going to do? You know, what can you do about that? That's just what they do, And, and you just got to carry on and hope that a few people out here in the country are somehow listening or getting some inkling of what's going on and kind of go, "Well, that's weird. You know, that's a Republican guy, isn't he? You know." <laughs> yeah. And hopefully, we'll, we'll we'll maybe think a little bit. I don't know. History will certainly show it to be that.
0: As a lover of audio, I also love audiobooks. And now, not only do I love the books, but I love the company I buy them from because Libro has changed the game. Before I would have ended up buying a book from one of the internet giants because I wouldn't have known where else to go. But then a few years ago, bookshop.org came along. You may have heard of them. They're a certified B Corp dedicated to funneling profits from online sales of print on paper books to local brick and mortar bookshops. You tell them who your local bookshop is and that shop gets a cut of each of your orders. Pretty clever, right? Now, Libro is working in partnership with Bookshop.org and doing the exact same thing, but for audiobooks. It is not an exaggeration to say that I was genuinely excited when I discovered Libro and signed up immediately in a please-take-my-money sort of fashion. And like other online audiobook sellers you may have heard of, owned by a very wealthy person who's notorious for Sort of having tried to drive local bookstores out of business, you can sign up for a monthly membership at Libro to get one free audiobook credit each month and a big discount on any other books you purchase. But fear not, no membership is required at all if you prefer one-off purchases. For details and to support this show with any purchase you make, go to bestofleft.com slash Libro. That's bestofleft.com slash L-I-B-R-O. Meanwhile, if books made of trees are actually more your thing, try bestofleft.com/bookshop.
8: One of the things I'd like to talk about with both of you is, is this question of the disparity in treatment between the uh, January 6th defendants and defendants in other types of prosecutions. And so, so Margo, as you mentioned earlier, you and I work on this database at the Intercept called Trial and Terror, where we track international terrorism prosecutions and, uh, you know, federal prosecutions of people alleged to have, you know, literal or ideological connections to Al Qaeda, ISIS, and other groups. Um, and, and what we see in those is something very different than what we see in the January 6th cases. You You know, and this is this relates specifically to what you mentioned earlier, where you know we're seeing a large number, if not half of the total, in January six, being charged with misdemeanors, uh, which is not at all a common charge in terrorism prosecutions. Um, And what we're also not seeing in the January six data, compared to terrorism prosecutions, are um, a common charge that prosecutors bring, known as making false statements, or otherwise known colloquially as lying to the FBI. Um, And I was wondering what your thoughts are on on this disparity in treatment. Um, You know, given that, I think we might be seeing something very different if it was a group of alleged ISIS associates who stormed the Capitol or maybe even a a group of uh, Black and Brown, Black Lives Matter uh, demonstrators.
9: Well, another uh, difference that I see is that in the charges against the terrorists, the uh, international terrorists, there are so many sting cases. And here we there are no stings. And also uh, here in the few cases that have gone to a conclusion, we see people who have actually had weapons with them and weapons, you know, weapons of mass destruction is one of the terrorism charges that could be brought, but it's, it wasn't in this, in this case. So there are differences. I, I believe that these cases, the similarities are in the, rounding up of people who seemingly have little connection to many other things uh, and that uh, both have kind of charges that now looking at our cases in the trial and terror, they would have been considered misdemeanors except that the extra allegation that people were somehow involved with an overseas group, even though they didn't go overseas, makes it a much tougher charge than being engaged with Oath Keepers or Proud Boys. Although it looks like this week that that, uh, Oath Keepers and Proud Boys are going to start having more uh, prosecutions will be involved with belonging to those groups, even though they're not known as terrorist groups. But in the hearings, they started to make it sound like they're similar to what would be called a terrorist group.
8: Yeah, similarly, Michael, I mean, are you seeing disparities in the January 6th prosecutions compared to, you know, your research on J20 or the summer of 2020 prosecutions?
10: Yeah, I mean, the comparison between the Floyd prosecutions is, is I think apt because, you know, they're, they're both, you know, somewhat constrained events. Uh, but, but, but they couldn't have been prosecuted in, in different ways. You know, the, the summer 2020 Floyd cases, you know, really followed some pretty clear patterns of, overcharging, an attempt to get, you know, plea bargains. We certainly, you know, had a lot of cases that were dropped, especially at the non-federal level, but even at the federal level. We had these, you know, in the Floyd cases, we had these seemingly, you know, not in all cases, but in in many cases, seemingly minor uh, crimes, which were sort of saddled with the much larger um, political, uh, you know, ongoing. So for example, you'd have a, you know, a, a document, a statement of facts document or an affidavit, which, you know, would talk about all of the destruction um, given to the Portland courthouse. And then when you got to the actual actions of that particular defendant, it was relatively minor. So you had this kind of individual saddled with a much larger and, you know, in a sense, scarier political context. Here, you, you have, you know, something different in, in the capital cases where, you know, as Margo said, about half the people are charged with relatively minor crimes and, and we'll never expect to see, uh, you know, the inside of a, of a jail cell, let alone a prison sentence. Um, so, you know, you know most of these people haven't been sentenced yet, but I just did a quick calculation on our, you know, length of prison sentence variable, and there are so many people that got no prison time that the actual, a- the mathematical average is zero at this point, um, because you know most people uh, received no no prison time. So I think that that's certainly a-, a major difference. Is that you know we don't have we we have a handful of cases in which people have the potential of having multi-year sentences um whereas in the Floyd cases if you look just at the summer ones you know most of those were were pretty um pretty steep charges and again a lot of them have been pled down but i think the vigor if i can say the vigor through which the department of justice and the united states attorney's office pursued those cases seems to uh, have been pretty pretty high and you know the as margo said the kind of investigative complexity Of some of the summer 2020 cases was was really quite, quite impressive. Whereas in the capital cases, you know, most of these things are a combination of monitoring people's own social media, people being snitched on by their friends and relatives, which is by far the most common way people seem to have been caught and, you know, simple geofencing of their phones and things like that. So the kind of like broad stroke investigative. Approach of the capital cases, you know, partially because everyone's constrained in the same physical area versus the, you know, deep dive investigations of the summer 2020 cases stands out to me as a really odd kind of uneven allocation of resources.
11: Five retired American generals, Michael Hayden, James Clapper, Stanley McChrystal, Douglas Lute, and Mark Hurtling, wrote an op ed titled, We Fought to Defend Democracy. This new threat to America now keeps us awake at night. What are they talking about? They're talking about this fascist element that has seized control of the Republican Party, principally in the persona of Donald Trump, but broadly. I mean, Trump could could drop dead of a, uh, uh, you know, one too many cheeseburgers tonight and his movement will live on tomorrow. It no longer needs Donald Trump. In fact, I, you know, I've I've been telling you for two years now that Donald Trump is not going to be the nominee of the Republican Party in 2024. I wouldn't surprise me if his son is nominee is the nominee for vice president. But I don't think he's going to be the president. But the movement that he has created, this fascist movement that he has created in this country, it is growing. Because as I noted, you know, in the, in the first hour, fascism, the, the, fa- fascism is all about violence, and the violence that fascism uses actually attracts people. It's the most powerful recruiting tool fascists have, is their own violence. Because you get all these insecure men who uh, feel like their lives are dull and ordinary and boring and feel like they're politically impotent, and, and perhaps sexually impotent in some cases, but p- politically impotent. And the violence gives them meaning. I mean, it's, I, I realize I'm kind of playing off Chris Hedges, the title of Chris Hedges' book, War is a, is a Force that gives, a, gives, us, gives Life Meaning or Gives Us Meaning, but it's absolutely the case. And, of course, war is simply violence, and fascism is simply war being used in politics and in governance. These five generals, they wrote, Today we harbor unprecedented concern for our country and for our democracy. The nation we have defended for decades is in real peril. Now, I'm telling you, when five retired generals come out and say something like that, we damn well better pay attention. They go on to say, history teaches us that democracy is never guaranteed. Not even here. Our democratic institutions and norms are more vulnerable than ever. If you were to ask us when when in our lives we were most likely to be losing sleep at night, keep in mind, these are all men who have been on the battlefield who, who have lived through some of the biggest crises in American history. Through 9-11, through, through the assassination of Kennedy, through the Cuban Missile Crisis, through I, on and on. They say, if you were to ask us when in our lives we were most likely to be losing sleep at night, we would all tell you, last night, and tonight, and tomorrow night. They go on to say, for those of us devoted to protecting democracies abroad, there comes a time when our efforts seem overshadowed by the erosion of democracy here at home. You get this? This is the point I'm making, and and with my op-ed this morning at HartmanReport.com, you know, that that talks about, uh, you know, is America getting meaner, That, that basically fascism is sweeping this land. And it is replacing democracy. We have a half a dozen states now that have passed laws saying that it doesn't matter how, who the people vote for as president. We, the state legislature, are going to decide what, you know, how we cast our vote in the Electoral College. You've got uh, almost 30 states that have passed laws making it harder for people to vote. Explicitly, intentionally, proudly. Yes, let's, let's whittle down democracy to the size where we can drown it in the bathtub. To paraphrase Grover Norquist. They go on to say, and for those of us focused on domestic security, speaking of them, these five generals, and for those of us focused on domestic security, the forces of autocracy now trump traditional foreign threats hands down. In other words, you have more to fear from the militia Driving around your town with a bunch of guys with with AR-15s in the back seat in the back of a pickup truck and, a, and big Trump and American flags, you have more to fear from them than from ISIS, from Al Qaeda, from the Chinese army, from the Russian army, from—I mean, you know—fill in the blanks. Right? They go on to point out it is no accident. I mean, these guys are. You know, this is their way of writing my op-ed. It is no accident they write in in USA Today today. It is no accident that one in three Americans seem willing to justify political violence as a means of overturning election results. You get it? These guys are saying we're talking about you, Donald Trump, and your followers. You are have put our democracy at such risk. That we, five highly decorated generals, are saying it is a greater threat to the United States than Russian nuclear weapons. It is a greater threat to the United States than 17 Saudis flying airplanes into, into buildings in New York City. It is a greater threat to the United States than the blind shake trying to blow up the, the trade, trade center. It's a greater threat to the United States than the infiltration of our government computer systems by Russian cyber hackers. It's a greater threat to the United States than, than China militarizing the, the, the South China Sea and the Straits of Taiwan. It's a greater threat to the United States than Ebola or COVID or monkeypox or whatever. Trumpism, fascism, these five generals are saying. My words, not theirs, but they, this is the essence of what they are saying. Is, is here... And is keeping them up at night. And they are saying that this is the greatest threat they have seen in their lifetimes. These are all men in their 60s and 70s. They end on a, on a voice of hope, I suppose you could say. They say a clear majority of Americans favor strengthening our democracy rather than weakening it. Imagine the impact on our lawmakers if each of them heard from each of us, with the simplest of all messages. And then they're talking about the safe pledge. They, 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 you know, which is a nice non-partisan initiative, but you know, frankly, it's not going to do anything. The only way you stop fascists is by outlawing fascism. <laughs>
12: The January 6th committee revealed six members of Congress who supported Trump's coup attempts sought presidential pardons—Mo Brooks of Alabama, Matt Gates of Florida, Louie Gohmert of Texas, Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, and Andy Biggs of Arizona. This is Republican Congress member Adam Kinzinger.
7: My colleagues and I up here also take an oath. Some of them failed to uphold theirs and instead chose to spread the big lie. Days after the tragic events of January 6th, some of these same Republican members requested pardons in the waning days of the Trump administration. Five days after the attack on the Capitol, Representative Mo Brooks sent the email on the screen now. As you see, he emailed the White House, quote, pursuant to a request from Matt Gates requesting a pardon for Representative Gates himself and unnamed others. Witnesses told the select committee that the president considered offering pardons to a wide range of individuals connected to the president. Let's listen to some of that testimony. And was Representative Gates requesting a pardon? I believe so. The, the general tone was, we may get prosecuted because we were defensive of you know the president's positions on these things. The pardon that he was discussing, requesting, was as broad as you could describe from the beginning. Of, I remember he's from the beginning of time up until today, for any and all things. He mentioned Nixon, and I said Nixon's pardon was never nearly that broad. And
5: are you aware of any members of Congress
6: seeking pardon? Mr. Gates and Mr. Brooks, I know both advocated for there to be a blanket pardon for members involved in that meeting and a handful of other members that weren't at the December 21st meeting um, as the preemptive pardons. Uh, Mr. Gates was personally pushing for a pardon and he was doing so since early December. I'm not sure why. Uh, Mr. Gates had reached out to me to ask if he could have a meeting with Mr. Meadows about receiving a presidential pardon. Did they all have that to you? Not all of them, but several of them did.
9: So you mentioned Mr. Gates and Mr. Brooks.
6: Um, Mr. Banks did. Mr. Jordan talked about congressional pardons, but he never asked me for one. There's more for an update on whether the White House is going to part members of Congress. Mr. Gomer asked for one as
12: well. That's Cassidy Hutchinson, a former aide to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, in her videotape deposition. Oh, and before her, senior White House legal advisor Eric Hirschman. To see Thursday's full hearing, go to democracynow.org, as well as all five of the hearings in full. Uh, The public hearings of the January 6 Committee will resume in mid-July.
0: We've just heard clips today starting with Fresh Air explaining that the insurrection was merely the last step in a much larger plan. Straight white American Jesus looked at how Trump's own people dismissed the claim of fraud in the election. The broadcast looked at the lawyers who didn't believe their own theories and the violent backlash Trump was preparing for. Fresh Air took a closer look at the Proud Boys and their growing connections to Trump and the GOP more broadly. Straight White American Jesus discussed Fox News not playing the hearings and the conspiracy theorists they had on instead. The broadcast explained the organization of the hearings and why the GOP isn't getting equal time. The Intercept examined the investigations and prosecutions following January 6th compared to the George Floyd protests, and Tom Hartman discussed the op-ed from five retired generals warning of the threat of autocracy. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from Democracy Now!, which highlighted a significant piece of testimony describing pressure from the Trump campaign for a civil servant to break their oath to the Constitution. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership, because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, let's just acknowledge that everything feels pretty awful right now. It's okay to feel sad, angry, you know, give yourself a minute to take in everything that's happening, but... With the midterm elections just four months away, we have a massively important task at hand where we can channel all of that rage and frustration and hopefully make a real impact. We are fighting a radicalized form of conservatism right now and cannot afford to give an inch. So, as many problems as they have... Democrats need to hold the House and make advances in the Senate majority, and as more decisions get kicked back to the states, we also need to make waves in state legislatures, secretary of state races, and governorships around the country. Now, with most primaries settled, the midterm campaigns are already underway, so if you haven't signed up to be a poll worker, do it. If you haven't started gauging which races are more important this year, get started. If you haven't committed to going door-to-door, phone banking, and volunteering for campaigns in other ways, find those campaigns now. We've included some great resources for you in the show notes to get you on your way to going all-in leading up to midterms, because as we always say— Voting is not enough, and with that there's going to be a brief pause in the production of our regular episodes so that I can work out exactly what I want to say in our 1500th episode not to raise expectations, God forbid it's just that I, I sort of set a challenge for myself to uh, to sort of curate, if you will, some of my thoughts about politics and the world for this milestone episode. And now I actually have to write those thoughts down and then say them into a microphone. So I need to give myself some time to do that. Now, this whole show started as a curation project because I was 23 at the time. And basically, the one thing I knew was that I shouldn't be the primary voice on a show because I didn't know enough. But I thought to myself at the time, you know, I'll probably learn some things along the way while doing the show. And if I listen to what other smart people think for long enough... Eventually, maybe I'll have my own thoughts. And now here we are, 1,500 episodes and 16 and a half years later, and I realized, you know what? I think it worked. I did learn some stuff along the way, and I do have some original ideas. And if you've been along for the ride this whole time, then you've probably heard me say a fair number of those thoughts out loud before. But for everyone else and just for convenience, I figured I'd say as many of them all together as I can. So stay tuned for that. As always, Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmaster and bonus show co-hosting, and thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofaleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And, as always, if you want to continue the discussion, join our Best of Left Discord community to discuss the show, the news, other podcasts, commiserate, as is sometimes necessary. Links for joining that community are in the show notes, so click on that. And also keep your recommendations coming in, recommendations for anything, anything you find interesting. We never know where inspiration will strike, so if you've heard an interesting podcast episode, seen an interesting video, watched an interesting documentary, met an interesting person in a coffee shop who said something to you, I want to know about it. Send me an email. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from BestofLeft.com.